Untitled Podcast is a part of the Kansas Google Education Group Network and also the Mace Kansas Network. You can find more information about episodes and guests at www.untitledpc.net. Welcome to Untitled Podcast. My name is Travis True. And I'm Carol Nelson. Welcome to this edition of the podcast. We have Jessica Mossman with us today. And Jessica, will you please introduce yourself and share with our listeners your journey in education and how you ended up where you are? Yeah, well, um, I am kind of one of those people that love to try something new, start something new. Um, I'm always one of the kind of first adopters. So when I was teaching elementary school, I, um, my principal came up and had this grant opportunity for a technology rich classroom. So I jumped on it and it was me and three others. And it was really a neat opportunity. We got laptops for every one of our students. It was right after iPod touches came out. And so each of our students also had, we had a classroom set of iPod touches um, and some other things like the clickers and things that people used to use in classrooms, but don't anymore. So we got that um, and we had a coach that took us through a couple year journey of integrating technology and everything that we did. Um, And that team, we did this giant PBL project of students starting businesses and things. And that team of teachers, we actually won teacher of the year um, through that grant opportunity across Kansas and video of the year. And then I moved up to middle school and I started some flipped classroom types of things with the middle school kids. And then the school district I was working for decided to expand, kind of scale up the program. And so we went one-to-one Chromebooks with all of our students. And at that point I switched to an instructional coach kind of technology role to help all of the teachers um, switch to this, you know, we were sending Chromebooks home with students, parent, we had to get parents on board, um, teachers had to figure out how to use them. And so that was really kind of quite a big project. Um, I learned a lot. And then now I work for the Kansas Learning Network as an implementation coach. It's always fun to hear the journey that gets us where we are currently. So tell us a little bit more about the Kansas Learning Network and even if teachers can get involved with that group as well. Yeah, so the Kansas Learning Network is a project of TASN, so the Technical Assistance System Network here in Kansas. Um, If you've never been to their website, you should go because what TASN does is it has a bunch of projects that are here to support schools all across Kansas in implementing evidence-based practices. So, um, you know, there's a request assistance button you can request assistance, put in what you're um, needing help with, and somebody gets back to you usually, you know, within a day or two. So um, we're a project of TASN, and we are specifically focused on school improvement. 
And so we do that through helping schools and districts come up with um, processes to improve their school, talk about communication and database decision-making, um, collaborative groups. And then we also focus on group development. And so um, if you go to our website, we have some things on there specifically about how to develop groups in a virtual setting. Um, we've got a presentation on there about presenting or facilitating in a virtual setting. And then one of my favorite, which was a presentation I did at ISTE several years back, is about Snapchat coaching. So when you are an instructional coach, you know, or technology coach, one of the things that often gets in people's way is time, like getting timely feedback to people and having like a good conversation back and forth, um, writing a note and leaving it just often doesn't cut it really well. And so this idea of using Snapchat where, you know, I, you go in and observe someone's room and then you can hop on there and give them a video. The video is important because it gives them the, the facial expressions, the tone, everything to, you know, receive that feedback. And then it's, I like Snapchat because it goes away. So it feels a little less permanent to people. Mm -hmm. um, but then they can hop back on and respond or answer something or ask a question. Um, it doesn't have to be Snapchat. You know, we've had people use uh, like the Marco Polo app with just their voice or even just text um, the voice thing where you record your voice in text or a lot of my teammates will use video because that's easy. They already have the video on their text message. But just this idea of there's different ways to do coaching, coaching people either um, specifically for technology or instruction in a different way. And so that's also on our website, along with all of the pieces and things that people might wonder about for school improvements. And we will have links to that in our show notes as well. So everyone, all the listeners can go to those and, and see those links. Yeah. So everybody, um, most everybody at some point in the last year taught remote or virtual. Um, a lot of people still are. And so how can teachers choose tools to use? Or I guess, how, how, can, how can you help or can you give some tips for teachers so they can choose the right tool to use in a virtual classroom environment? Yeah. So I think there's this myth out there that teachers always have to be using a new and different tool. Um, and that causes a lot of stress on people. And we see it in PD. I saw it when I was a tech coach, I would introduce a tool and um, people would jump on it, which is exciting. I'm a, I'm a first adopter mm -hmm. too. But for some people, it causes a lot of stress. And for students, it can cause some stress too. So I've just been encouraging people to think about, you know, when, when students are learning, they, if you think of it as an equilateral triangle, they are balancing three things. At the top of the triangle is like the content. Then there's also the Another point is the process or structure that you're using. And then the other point is a, the tool. So in person, that might be the content is we're reading this text. The other point is that it's we're looking for the main idea and you're going to talk to a partner. And then the other, the tool is a graphic organizer. Okay, that's pretty straightforward in person. 
But in virtual setting, it gets a lot more complicated because now if I take that same thing, the student is balancing the text. And so if I'm on Zoom or Google Hangouts, I'm now balancing, I've got another tab or another screen or something going on. And I'm balancing trying to find the main idea and talk to my partner. So I'm balancing probably a breakout room. And if I'm doing a graphic organizer, now that's a third screen and a third tool. Now I'm out in Google or something else. And so that's just a lot to balance. And anytime that a student is learning a new tool, it kind of pulls away. It's harder to focus for them on the content and the process of what they're supposed to be doing. They focus more on the tool. And so tools are great. Tools are fun, but you just have to kind of balance. If it's a really difficult um, cognitive process that they're doing or topic, then you want to lean into tools that they are already used to using and have already done. So easy ones are the ones that are already in Zoom or Google Hangouts, but those don't always do what you need to. So I say start there first if you can. If it doesn't do what it needs to, then go to something else. Um, Google's a great next step because it does a lot. But don't always feel like you have to keep introducing new and different tools. So I'm not, I'm going to not do, you know, Google and then tomorrow do a Padlet and then tomorrow, the next day do a, um, a Mentimeter and then the next day do something else because that's just too much for students to balance. So, you know, pick, pick a couple, stick with them um, is, is just the more, a better way to approach and an easier way to approach virtual learning. I think once people hear that too, they kind of go, okay, I've got that under control. I can do that. You know, it's this weight off their shoulders thinking that they had to like be new and inventive of different tools all the time. And I don't, I don't think they need to, to be effective. Yeah. And that's good. That's good advice, even for in person face to face. Cause the what comes to my mind is these different quizzing tools, Kahoot quizzes, Quizlet, um, Gymkit. And so everybody, you know, pick one of those. They all do the same thing. Yes. Essentially. Yep. Pick, pick the one that works best for you and master it. And then, um, you know, maybe try one every once in a while just to just to see. But. Yeah, don't think you have to use everything out that's out there. And it does take the pressure off of not only just the kids, but also the teacher, like you said. So, yeah. yeah and even better if you, you know, um, at, at the school I taught with, we teamed. And so the, the kids went around to the same teachers. So like if we as a team picked, these are the tools we're going to use, you know, those kids, they don't have to, I don't have to teach them in language arts and then they go to math and somebody else has to teach them a new one. We teach it to them once. And we all use it. Now we're not spending class time teaching the tool, but we're using it to learn stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Another um, component within the virtual classroom is the camera. And I know it's been kind of a great debate um, in social media with, do you have it on? Do you make kids have it on? Do they not have it on? What is some advice that you would give teachers to get kids to turn on their camera? Yeah, you know, I think that, both sides are valid, right? Te- some teachers want to mandate turning it on because they want to see the engagement. They want to see their students. Um, you know, other people are 
they don't want to because they know that there's things going on behind the scenes that they are not privy to. Could be bandwidth, it could be in their house or environmental things or just, you know, self-conscious personal things. But I equate it to this. So if you all, if were to come to my house, like if I had invited you over to do this, if you came over, I would be able to set the rules in my own house, right? So I would be able to say, ah, you know, please take off your shoes when you come in the house or, you know, please use a coaster or whatever the rules are at my house. Same thing is if I would have come to your house, you would have been able to set the rules there. And so, you know, when kids come to school, they're kind of coming into the shared space, but typically the teachers really are setting the rules. There's a little bit difference when you are teaching virtually because you, are, you aren't bringing kids into your space. You are actually going out mm-hmm. into their space. So it's like you are virtually entering their house. And so, you know, I, I just don't think we can mandate or give rules to somebody at their own house. Now there are things that we can do to encourage, right? We can tell them why, all the reasons why we would love for them to be on camera. We want to see their smiling faces. And then there's also the piece of, we have to make sure to provide the right type of virtual environment. Um, There is more, for whatever reason, there is more psychological safety that is needed in a virtual environment than in person. And I'm not sure if that's because, you know, people are um, just, there's just a disconnect when we're looking at screens instead of in person, but teachers have to be even more intentional about creating psychological safety in an online environment. So they can do that in a few ways. I mean, when we lean into the uh, students, raise your hand and speak out loud, tell me the answer, right? That is the scariest. That's the riskiest kind of environment that needs the most psychological safety. So if that is the, my first way I'm interacting with kids and the way I'm interacting with kids, the majority of time, there's probably not a lot of, there might not be a lot of safety going on. So I want to do some other things like, you know, um, I'm just going to take a pause and let you think and write it down on your own. There's a lot, lot of safety in that. If I'm just thinking on my own. Um, I'm going to send you to a breakout room with a partner. The smaller the group, the more safety there is. I'm going to send you with a small group. I'm going to do those things to work up to the one person speaking in front of the whole class. And I have to do that over the length of, you know, not just one lesson, but all my lessons. Um, And then I think there's this other part, too, of... Chris Emden, he's an associate professor for science education at Columbia, but he was talking about how you should, you know, first, if you are really struggling to get kids to turn on their cameras, um, kind of make a connection with them and acknowledge how they might feel. I know you don't want to turn on your cameras. Here's the reasons I don't want to turn on my cameras. So I'm making a connection, right? And then you're going to ask them, well, why don't you? And you're just going to write down like, make a record of it. At this point, you're not, in, you're not trying to, you know, convince them of anything or tell them why they're wrong or they're right or change anything. You're just listening. And then you're going to take those answers. And he, what he says is, you know, could build pedagogy structures that attend to those needs. And I just love the way he says that because 
you're probably not going to convince a kid just because I keep talking blue in the face and telling you to turn your camera on. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What's probably going to convince a kid finally is if I listen to them and attend to whatever it is that they are, that they are not wanting to turn it on for. So I think those are some ways that you can, you know, hopefully get kids to turn their cameras on. Um, I think as educators too, we also have to just be okay with, we might still not get everybody. Mm-hmm. And that might be not due to anything that you did. If you've tried all of these things, it might not be due to you. It might be to something outside of you. So I think try, uh, my suggestion would not be to mandate though. Yeah, and there's other, <clears throat> there's other factors that go into why a kid won't turn their camera on. It could be like one of the suggestions we make when, when kids have um, low internet connectivity is not use your camera because video takes a lot of internet bandwidth. Yes. And, and so that, that could be a reason or it could be a hardware issue that the camera just doesn't work. I mean, we've, you know, we've had to deal with that. So just because they're turning their camera on, doesn't mean they don't want to sometimes they just can't or if they do then they're going to lose the quality of the of their signal so um so yeah so there's other factors too but those are some really good um, suggestions on getting those kids who don't just you know that just want to sit in the back of your zoom class i guess and, <laughs> and and not be totally engaged Yeah, I think that's why you got to ask, right? You got to figure out if they are uh, trying to actively disengage or is it because of something else that you can't address? Mm -hmm. Making them feel safe and acknowledging that. I mean, as an introvert, you know, I'd rather have my camera off, but if I knew I was safe, that makes a difference. Yeah. And then what if your camera's on, introverts kind of feel like after the camera session that they need to, they need a few minutes to themselves now to, <laughs> to recover and recuperate. Absolutely. <laughs> so Karen and I are both Google uh, for education trainers and we, we geek out on, on techie stuff. So we want to know what's your go-to or your favorite tech tool that you use. Yeah, the one I have been using the most um, recently is We Video. I've been making a lot of videos, and I like it because it's um, internet based. So you know, all of my um, stuff that I've been working on is in the cloud. It also integrates with my Google. So when I, you know, record something, I can just put it in my Google Drive and also save the finished videos. Um, it's really easy to use. I feel like it's pretty intuitive. I picked it up pretty fast. I've had kids use it to make um, projects, end of unit projects, but mostly I've been using it lately as a way to communicate because I found, especially when people are all in different places and spaces right now, that written communication um, just leaves a lot up for interpretation. People tend to get the information better if I make a video. So sometimes I've just been making even two minute videos um, to um, to give information out, or I've even been making them like, okay, we're meeting, you know, next week to talk about X, Y, Z. Here's a little background information on it. And I'll explain something mm-hmm. and I'll just send it to them. Hey, watch this before we meet. So that way, when we meet, 
on Zoom. We're not spending 10 minutes getting caught up. I've already sent you the video. You've already watched it. We're instead getting on Zoom and we're like ready to start collaborating right, right away. So anyways, I've been liking WeVideo. I think it's it's easy to use and it works with my Google. So I always like that. Yeah, it's a good tool. <clears throat> this last question is something that we have asked every guest that's been on. Um, it's been fun to see the different answers and suggestions, um, but in taking a positive spin to the time of COVID that can feel very negative. So what is something that you will take away from this time of teaching during COVID that you would continue and carry forward? Um, my eyes have really been opened to the idea of, um, equity when using technology. So, you know, equity certainly is all about the things that, um, we think of in equity. It's, um, goes across race, gender, ethnicity, language, disability, sexual orientation, family background, income, all of those things. And when you add technology, there's a, another added layer of equity, which I think we could label as access. So it's not only access to broadband or access. I mean, it is, it is access to broadband. It is access to, um, you know, having the equipment that I need. It's also access to things like, do I have the skills to do what you're asking me to do? Um, you know, that's with students and with staff. Like if we don't have the skills, then I don't have the access to what I need, the information I need or what I need to be able to do. Um, it's also about like logins. If I have to have a login to do this, that's a possible point of denying access to someone because now they have to create a new account and a new password and things. Um, it's also about, you know, communication and how we're putting out information. So if my school or district is pretty much only putting things out on Facebook, we're denying access to that information to all of the parents who, and families who don't have Facebook. So I'm not saying don't put it on Facebook, it's put it there. If that works really good for your school, put it there and put it somewhere like a website that everybody can look at it and gather that information. So the, yeah, the thing I'm taking from this whole COVID situation that I hadn't really pinpointed before when I was using technology in the classroom was, you know, access, access to the information and to the learning is a big piece of um, equity. And it's something that we have to continue to focus on, you know, post COVID is, is just making sure everybody has what they need to learn. Yeah, that's the that's the big thing that I think has popped out to a lot of or highlighted, I guess, for a lot of people is just the like you said, all the inequity, especially the connectivity piece. Um, that that is, it's a rural school school rural issue. It's an urban issue. Um, but yeah, so that's um, that that's great that you. Um, that's your takeaway. So, um, well, Jessica, I want to thank you for coming on to, um, to the podcast today. How can, where can people find you online or how can they connect with you if they got more questions or just want to reach out? 
Yeah, so I'm probably most active on Twitter. Um, and my Twitter handle is just my last name, Mossman um, Jessica. So you can find me there. Um, and also, if you go to the Kansas Learning Network page um, that's listed in the show notes, you can find, you know, my email address and things there as well. Yep. And we'll have those listed in the show notes, all those links and everything. And uh, you can, all listeners can check that out. So um, thanks you f- for coming on, Jessica. And thanks for everybody for listening and we'll see you next time.